stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word? We'll be reading it out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. And it just seemed appropriate to, to end this series where we began this series. And uh, I, I believe these words are important. And, and uh, I don't think we, we could read through this too much, <laughs> this little instruction from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, is there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Lord, bless your word. Multiply it in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I love that passage, and, and there's so much in that passage. We, we, we've not been going through this passage scripture by scripture, and, and it would probably be interesting to do it at some point in that way, that the, the ideals, the concepts that Jesus give us in, in that passage. I, I believe that passage speaks for our day and, and our age. Uh, as much as any age, I, I believe this worrying about things and worrying about the future. And uh, who, who in the past week, and I want you to be honest, has worried about something you had no control over? Raise your hand, okay? Uh, I believe, and, and the rest of you, we'll talk about lying next week. Um, I believe Jesus is speaking right where most of us live. Uh, the, the ideal of, of worrying about what we have and what we do. And, and so this has been the, the kickoff passage that we've used uh, throughout this series, at least several weeks. And, and we've been talking about habits and, and the whole ideal that habits shape life. The, the, you're not shaped by the big events of your life but you are shaped by the routines and the habits of your life. What you do day by day, what you do in, in, in your downtime, what you do every morning, what you do every night, the habits of life are shaping. 
And the scripture tells us that we should seek God. So, so we want habits, routines that move us towards the righteousness of God and towards his kingdom. And, and this series has been an invitation to be intentional about our routines and our habits. To, to take them serious, to, to understand how formative these little routines and these little habits that we have in our life might be. I think oftentimes we, we see the big things but not the small things, and the small things matter. You know, it's easy to fall into bad habits and bad routines. Spencer and I are up here most of the week by ourselves. We're like two bachelors. <laughs> and it's very easy to fall into the habit of eating uh, supper over the sink, <laughs> uh, to, to grab a pizza and watch TV while we're eating pizza. It's very easy to fall into those kind of habits when it's just Spencer and I. And so we have to be intentional. Not that we never eat pizza and watch TV. Sometimes we do. I will confess, I'm sorry, I'm a bad dad. And sometimes Domino's is very easy. But we have to be intentional about our, our habits. It's, it's easy to fall into bad habits. Amen? It is easy to fall into bad habits in every area of our life. In, in, in the physical areas of our life, it's a lot easier in, to fall into the habit of eating candy and sweets every day than eating vegetables. Every, I don't know why that is. To, to, to be a couch potato instead of exercising. Good habits are harder to establish than bad habits. You can say amen to that. That is very practical. So we must intentionally create right habits in our life. If you want right habits in your life, you have to be far more intentional about them than the bad habits. This applies in every area. This applies just to physical things. This applies to relationship issues. This applies to financial issues. This applies to every area of our life. And it applies to the spiritual areas of our life as well. If we want to have right spiritual habits in our life, we need to be intentional and we need to spend time and energy making sure our habits and our routines are leading us to a relationship, a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, that our habits are helping us seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And so we've been examining habits, and we've talked about the habits uh, of seeking God first through prayer and, and, and the word. We've talked about the habit of gathering. We've talked about the habit of tithing. Last week we talked about the habit of fasting. We've talked about the habit of thanksgiving. And, and this week we're going to do a habit that may be a little bit different than, than, than you would think, and it's the habit of hospitality, uh, submitting my relationships to God. And, and as I've went through this series, you, you know, you, I could go for many more weeks in this series on different habits, and, and, and I was trying to figure, uh, you know, what, what would be a good one to end it on, and, and, and I know this is a little bit different, but, but I believe we can be habitual, <laughs> uh, we can have 
a habit of hospitality in our relationship with others. And I think in a lot of ways, this ideal of hospitality, and you're thinking, oh, well, you know, that, that, that sounds like you, know, you, you throw good parties or something, Pastor. This habit of hospitality, I, I, I believe when you read the Gospels, is a central theme in the ministry of Jesus. It's a, it's a central theme in the ideal of what Jesus saw the church be. This place where hospitality is practiced both to people who belong to the body and those who are trying to learn what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I've got a simple definition for you. Hospitality is the, the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers. And that's from dictionary.com. It was on the internet. It's got to be right, right? So the friendly reception and treatment of guests or, or strangers. And, and I want to read a scripture today that, that I think will help us to, to catch a glimpse of this radical hospitality that Jesus practiced. And it's out of John 13. And I'm going to read it today. I'm going to read out the message, which is, you know, a, a, um, not a translation, but a, a, um, a paraphrase of, of a translation. Uh, and and, and you, most of us have heard it. And I'm reading it out of the message because I want you just to kind of listen. And as I'm reading the scripture, uh, I want you to put yourself in this room. If you can, you know, close your eyes, whatever you need to do. But, but I, as I read through this, I want you to imagine that you're one of the 12 disciples and you're sitting and you're watching what Jesus is doing. I want you to kind of imagine what, what your feelings would be, what your emotions would be. What would you think about Jesus as he begins to, to wash your feet and the feet of others? John 13, beginning in verse 1. It's not going to be on the screen. We've got a picture up there you can see that kind of helps us. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go to his Father. Having loved his dear companions, he continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time. The devil by now had Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, setting aside his robe, and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with his apron. When he got to Simon Peter, Peter said, Master, you wash my feet? Jesus answered, you don't understand now what I am doing, but it will be clear enough to you later. Peter persisted, you're not going to wash my feet ever. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you can't be part of what I'm doing. Master, said Peter, knowing my feet then, wash my hands, wash my head. Jesus said, if you had a bath in the morning, you only need your feet washed now and you're clean from head to toe. My concern, you understand, is holiness, not hygiene. So now you're clean, but not every one of you. Jesus knew who was betraying him. That's why he said, not every one of you. After he finished washing their feet, he took his robe, put it back on, and went back to his place at the table. 
And he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. That is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to his employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. What we have in this story, and and I got to tell you, there's a whole slew of sermons and there's a, a series in this passage by itself. But but one thing I want you to see this morning, that you have in this story this practical, powerful, welcoming act of hospitality by Jesus. Jesus is giving us the example of welcoming and being a host. Jesus is taking on the servant. There's nothing below Jesus in order to practice and establish an atmosphere of hospitality with the disciples. Now, now we tend to spiritualize this event and make it more ritual. But I want you to know that what Jesus did wasn't some ritual or just some spiritual experience. But Jesus did something very practical in washing the disciples' feet. Jesus met a very real need. You you can see the the need and and you can see the importance of this in the story in Luke 7. In Luke 7, Jesus is in the home of Simon the Pharisee. You know the story. And Jesus is sitting with all the, the Pharisees and and, you know, they're, they're asking Jesus questions, and, and they're going back and forth in the middle of, of his dialogue with all the, the, the elite. Some woman comes in who is not elite. She's a sinner. She's, from their perspective, a loser. She's an outsider, and she begins to weep and wipe Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And all the Pharisees are whispering back and forth about this lady who's touching Jesus, and they're saying things like, if he was a prophet, he would know who was touching him. And, and Jesus listens, and he knows what's going on, and he tells this parable. He goes, Simon, I have a story. I want you to answer me. There, there's two, two people, and one is forgiven a lot. This is the gist of the story. And one's forgiven a little. Well, which one's going to be the most grateful? Simon, of course, says, well, the one who's been forgiven a lot. And then Jesus changes the whole dialogue here, and he's not even talking about forgiveness anymore, but he's talking about a host. He says, Simon, I came into your home, and you didn't even offer me water to wash my feet. You didn't even offer me a cup of water. You've not been a, a host, but this lady is showing me hospitality. She's showing me what a host should do. So when you take those stories and and you understand John 13 in the context 
uh, of Luke 7, in, in the context of this culture, Jesus is the perfect host. We don't use this language, but other traditions use the language as Jesus is the host. And when we've gathered, we have a host here. Jesus sits at the head of the table, and he is the perfect host, even to the, to the extent that with the disciples, Jesus would take on the form of a servant to demonstrate what hospitality looks like. We began this series looking at a book or, or some quotes from a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And in the book, James Smith writes, actions are driven by what we desire, and what we desire is driven by our routines and habits. In other words, it, it's kind of circular. The, the habits of life shape our desires, and, and these desires are what drive us to actions. We are, we are loving people, and we are passionate people, and what we have a passion for, a desire for, is what drives our actions. So he said it like this, to begin with, our habits shape our desires, and what we desire shapes our actions. And in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Smith particularly talks about the liturgies of a church, a, a more traditional church setting. But I want you to know that every church has a liturgy. We have a liturgy in this place, even though it's less formal. Almost every Sunday we have a welcome. We have a routine and a habit of doing service in this place. Amen? Every church does. In some it's more formal, and some it's less formal, but every church has a certain measure of liturgy. Some churches have a, a, an official welcoming every Sunday. And I got to tell you, I wish we had an official welcoming where I would say something and you would say something. There, there's something beautiful about that when we understand the meaning of it. I, I've got it up there on the screen. Put it up there. I'm going to say, the Lord be with you, and you say, and also with you, with you okay? Can we do this? Are you guys, let, let's, get, let's, get our, let's get our liturgical faces on, okay? The Lord be with you. You know, there's something beautiful about that. There's something welcoming. There's something where we're participating together in this welcoming of each other, and it's significant, and it's you know, we don't just go through the motions in church, but what we're doing in this place should be forming us into lovers of God, lovers of his kingdom, lovers of each other. And somehow what we do here has a purpose and a meaning. Smith says this about the welcome. As recipients of God's greeting, we become imitators of God by extending welcome to our neighbors and brothers and sisters. We are immediately reminded that worship is not a private affair. We have gathered as a people, as a congregation, and just as together we are dependent on our redeeming creator, so too we are dependent on each other. In our liturgy, in our church, there's a there's a practice of hospitality. So, so what are the elements of the habit of hospitality? I, I think there's three elements for, for people who, who practice hospitality. I think the first thing is open doors. <laughs> I, I had an aunt and uncle, and, and his name was Uncle George. I found out his name was, uncle, was George at his funeral. Before that, I just knew him as Peanut. <laughs> Everybody should have an Uncle Peanut, let me tell you. Uncle Peanut lost the two middle fingers 
on one of his hands in a press, and he'd come up behind his wife and say, Guess who? <laughs> they were open-door people. You know, it didn't matter. You know, as I, as I became an adult, they, they were the kind of people where you just walked into their house, and that's the way they wanted it to be. Yeah, I think people who practice hospitality are open door people. You know, not not you don't want people walking in your house at three a.m. saying, "Well, I don't want that gift, Pastor." But your home is open to other people. You know what's missing in most churches? You want to know what's missing in most churches? Most churches, all of our social interaction occurs here. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I hope we're, you know, we have good, strong friendships here. But churches that make a difference in individuals' life, it extends into our homes. It extends to restaurants where we gather and eat together, where we do life together. See, see if this is the extent of doing life together in this place, has an effect, but it's limited. So their open doors is, is, is the first habit of a, a person who practices hospitality. The second is open hands. Ready to serve and belong. The, the truth of it is that in, in a congregation this size, there's people who have needs and they have hurts and they have things that they're going through and those needs and those hurts separate us, isolate us from others. And so if we practice hospitality, we, we have the discernment and the gift to see those needs that are isolating our brothers and sisters in Christ from the rest of the body and we move to meet those needs. The third element is open hearts. Willing to love. I've said this before, and I'll say this again. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, our, our love will ever be expanding. And as people come into those back doors, and they may be visiting or guests with us, and they may be becoming part of our congregation, our hearts are not closed, and we don't already have enough friends, and we don't already have enough people inside our inner circle, but we're constantly willing to open ourselves to other people. Hospitality moves us beyond the ones who love us. So I think about this sermon and, and how do we practically apply it. I want you to know that you are representatives of Jesus Christ in this building. Upwards has been amazing as I've watched you practice hospitality. And, and, and I've heard, and this has been kind of an amazing thing, as people have come through the door, I've heard several times, oh, you work here? <laughs> no, this is my church. And so we're finding as we stand at the doors and people come through that our friends and our neighbors are connecting us now to this place. And so if they, if they have a church home, great. But if they don't have a church home and they're looking for a church home, they realize that I have a friend that goes right here. 
And so we practice hospitality in our building, and, 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 and it's, you know, we have ushers and greeters who are hosts on Sunday morning. And we need more. This is a blatant appeal to you that we need more ushers and greeters because we have guests that are coming to our church and they need friendly folks who are willing to greet them and welcome them. And this is a mass appeal. But some of you, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to look at our gift testing and some of you I'm going to, I'm going to approach uh, privately and ask you to consider the ministry. And let me tell you, it's a lot better to, to volunteer for the army than be drafted, right? Pray about it. Next week, Jerry Lucas is, is going to be uh, here speaking, and we were very intentional on having Jerry Lucas. Uh, Jerry Lucas will preach about or talk about the importance of memorizing the Word of God, but primarily Jerry Lucas is a connection with all those upward families that have come through our church building the last eight weeks. And, and most of you, know, if you know who Jerry Lucas is, raise your hand. Christy, look. And we're intentionally trying to connect with people that may not have another church home. And I need many official and unofficial hosts who will be a welcoming, friendly face. If you're willing to serve in that way, just next week, write your name on a card so, so that we can make sure that there's people coming to this place because there's not going to be snow next week. Say that with me. There's not going to be snow next week. We pray that. <laughs> I need host. Try it one week, and then maybe you'll find you'll like it. Maybe at a door, maybe in a sanctuary. We need host in our church because the friendliness of a church matters. And every church has that story of the one who came and, oh, the church wasn't friendly. This is a friendly church, folks. I believe that, don't you? Friendliness matters. And, and folks, I believe there's people in the kingdom because of a friendly word and a handshake. I believe it makes an eternal difference that the level of friendliness and hospitality that we have in this place. But churches are moving from attractional to missional. We can't just wait for people to come into our church. We have to be host in our community. I mean, can you begin to imagine what your role as a host, as a representative of this local church body might be as it extends beyond this wall? I wrote it like this. The church is to demonstrate the hospitality of Christ in the community. And when I say the church, the church is not defined by a building or a gathering time, but the church is you. And as we practice hospitality, as we practice the generosity and the love of Christ in our community, we are demonstrating the character of our God to those around us. We've been talking about how the liturgies in a church shape, and, and we're closing this week very intentionally with communion. Communion is significant. Communion is 
is this Thanksgiving meal. As a matter of fact, Eucharist is the word that's used with communion throughout the ages. And, and Eucharist means Thanksgiving. And, and so there's this idea of we're gathering at a Thanksgiving feast, giving God thanks for salvation, for, for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have a lot to be thankful for, right? And so we've gathered for the purpose of thanksgiving. It's a remembrance meal. We're, we're remembering Jesus. Knowing that Jesus came and that he died, but, thanks, but communion reminds us there's coming a day where all this will pass and we'll sit at the table and Jesus will be at the head and there'll be a feast in the presence of our God. Boy, that, that's something to get excited about. I can almost hop a little bit. We go, ooh. But communion shapes us towards hospitality. John Howard Yoder, who's a 20th century theologian, suggests that breaking bread together is a matter of economic ethics. <laughs> and in breaking bread together, we look at each other at the table, and it's like a family meal. And we look at each other, and we realize that we're in this together. Christ sets at the head of the table and we're sitting with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're at one table together in this, in this thing together. Anybody ever go to a family meal where you have the, the real table than the kids' table? <laughs> I want you to know that there's no kids' tables in God's kingdom. We sit at one table together, no matter your age, your race, your gender, whoever you are in Jesus Christ, you sit at the same table, one with another. And Jesus established this meal for his church. Then the Nazarene church we call a sacrament. We have two sacraments, baptism and communion. And this, this communion table indicates it's support. It's, it's central to the ideal table fellowship, and it's, it's radical in the time of the, the, the early apostles because it meant that Jews and Gentiles were eating together, that there was one table, one family. So it has an economic ethic because we look at those around the table, and, and we couldn't imagine our brother or our sister or our mother or our father or our kids with needs and just leave them in the midst of that needs. And as we eat at this table together, we should look at each other and say, man, nobody in my family should go hungry at night. Nobody in my family should suffer alone. We're in this together. And so communion is this shaping mill. I was walking to the Gables last week to see Ernie in Ernie's home, praise the Lord. And, and there was a sign that caught my eye. It says, are you a caregiver? <laughs> and I thought about that as I went by. What we're doing here, that the ideal of hospitality is this. Followers of Jesus are caregivers. You are a caregiver this morning. There, there's people in your life that, that, that you are being led or are permitted, or by God's grace, he has given you the ability, the means, the opportunity to provide care. In Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this about communion. The day of the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. 
reconciled in their hearts with God and the brethren. The congregation receives the gift of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And receiving that, it receives forgiveness, new life, and salvation. Amen. It is given new fellowship with God and men. The fellowship of the Lord's Supper is the superlative, sorry, can't say that very easy, fulfillment of Christian fellowship. As members of the congregation are united in body and blood at the table, so they will be together in eternity. Here, community has reached its peak, its goal. Here, joy in Christ and his community is complete. The life of Christians together under the word has reached its perfection in the sacrament. Stand with me, if you will. I'm going to ask Joe and Christy to come and help me as we receive communion. You're going to come from the back, and the ushers are going to dismiss you, and you'll receive the elements, and then I'll give you instructions on receiving communion. Uh, let's pray before we um, begin that process. Our Heavenly Father, right now I pray that you'll help us as we, um, as we receive this sacrament, that we will um, not just see bread and juice, but Lord, we'll see that we're sitting at one table with you at the head. Lord, if there's anything within us that's um, displeasing to you, may we confess it and release it. Lord, may we allow you to be Lord in all that we do. Lord, I love you and I praise you for your goodness and your mercy in my life. I'm thankful, Lord, for salvation. And I'm thankful for this church. Help us now, Lord, as we receive communion together that we truly do it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ushers. Don't, you know, we, we used to sing that a lot. and I, I can remember growing up in the church, we always used the phrase, brothers and sister. Now, I, I miss that because then what, you have to remember people's names. It's just brother and sister. But I think there's something more significant than that, don't you? You know, we, we eat a feast together. We eat a meal together. That's what Christians do. That's what we do in the church because we're family. And, and so we do this little thing, and, and it can become ritual, and it can lose meaning, and, 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 and we can lose the focus of it. But I believe God's wanting us to see today that we're in this together. Just like this afternoon, you'll sit down with the ones you love most, and you'll eat. Jesus institutes this little feast for his community to remind us one table, one Lord, in this together. Let me read some scripture. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Drink. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I pray now, Lord, that you'll take my words, and Lord, if they're not of you, I pray, Lord, that you'll, you'll move them from our memory. But, Lord, may your spirit take 
what you're trying to tell your church and plant it deep within our heart. I pray, Lord, that we will be people of hospitality, people who practice hospitality, that, that we just don't um, have an attitude of friendliness, but, Lord, we have actions of friendliness and openness and welcoming. Be with us, Lord. Go with us. And, Lord, I pray your blessing on your people. And may the Spirit of Jesus Christ, may the Holy Spirit indwell them and fill them in such a way as they leave this place, Lord. May they go as vessels that bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.